Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Today we are joined by William Alexander, who is a slightly different type of social theorist than we normally have on the Office Hours podcast. Will teaches in the English department at the Minnesota College of Arts and Design. Last November, he won the prestigious National Book Award for his first novel, Goblin Secrets, and the Earphones Award for narrating the same book. Today, Will is joining us to discuss the powers of fantasy and the relationship between fiction and the social world. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So, this past November, I ended up with a rather bad case of the stomach flu, and I was in no mood for dense social theory, so I turned to your book, Goblin Secrets, as a more exciting alternative. However, from the very beginning, even as I found myself being drawn into the world that you created, I realized I'd failed in my goal of escaping from critical social commentary. So my first question is, were these just the feverish thoughts of a bedridden academic, or am I correct in thinking that there was something more about this book than just a temporary escape into a fantasy land? Uh, probably both. <laughs> I, <laughs> That's fair. I like to think the book has has some substance to it. I mean, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, but even even mere escapism is is more than mere escapism potentially, mm-hmm. regardless of what the author intended. Um, at the very least, those kinds of escapes tell us what we want to escape from. Okay. And what we fantasize about escaping to, and and those are both those are worth knowing about. Um, and any I mean any given temporary escape into a fantasy land can can provide social commentary. Um, even even some really horrible books actually, like even regressive or conciliatory comfort food mm-hmm. that's um, a fantasy but meant to reassure us that everything we already believe is unassailably true. Okay. That... And you won't name any of those? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But it's important to read a lot of crap as a kid as, yeah. as well as a lot of good stuff. Um, just, just the act of presenting a fantasy world to explore makes makes the opposite point. It says, look, here's a different world. Therefore, worlds can be different. Possibilities mm-hmm. exist beyond what we take for granted. And I am I am totally riffing off of Joanna Russ here. Okay. Um, and I've got a quote. I've got a quote right here from uh, her book, What Are We Fighting For? Okay. Um, that makes the same case for science fiction that I'm making about fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says... I began reading science fiction in the 1950s and got from it a message that didn't exist anywhere else than in my world. Explicit sometimes in the detachable ideas, implicit in the gimmicks, peeking out from behind often intolerably class-bigoted racist and sexist characterizations, somehow surviving the usual America, the Empire is good (laughs) plots, and more, most fully expressed in these strange life forms and strange, strange, wonderfully strange landscapes was the message, things can be really different. So, yeah, putting the two together, science fiction and mm-hmm. fantasy, uh, unrealist literature is in that way uniquely qualified to create some sort of critical social commentary. It, it really can't help it. Mm-hmm. Just by providing, imagining an outside place to stand. 
after uh, after hearing you read that quote, I understand why you won the earphones award. That was that was very impressive. Ah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I like reading. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you see the relationship between good fiction and the social world? Um, um, varied and complicated, but I'm going to focus in on um, the strange making effect. Mm -hmm. This is a really bad, badly translated term from Brecht, um, and I'm probably okay. going to mispronounce it. The Fremdungseffekt. Mm -hmm. Um, alienation. It's usually translated as alienation. Oh, okay. It's and and Brecht was sort of aggressively anti storytelling in in the way that he told stories. In that he didn't want you to fall under the spell of a story mm -hmm. and get absorbed by it. And he wanted people to develop the critical the enough critical consciousness to question whatever narrative might be coming at them for yeah. political reasons. Uh, and you know, la la la. But I, I love the more literal translation that it's a, the a more just the wonderful way that German the German language creates new nouns by squishing together several other words. <laughs> that the the Verfremdung I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. Verfremdung's effect is the strange making effect. It can make the familiar strange and the strange familiar, which fiction writers and fantasy writers we've we've absolutely stolen that from anthropology mm -hmm. it's interesting i actually begin every sociology class that i teach by saying that's the goal to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar excellent so, uh, i like hearing you say that i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that we we've all stolen that from one of the early anthropologists yeah. i can't remember who but yeah well, i think so just that going out and seeing how how other other cultures do things in utterly different environments, and then that becomes normal, and then you come back, and what we do with forks becomes bizarre yeah. and strange, and and visiting visiting imaginary worlds, or even even just spending a little time behind somebody else's eyes in a fictional context. I'm reading a realist novel, but seeing the world through through some other protagonist, mm -hmm. um, it it fosters empathy. It it has to. It snaps you out of yourself, and a closer look at other circumstances uh, can help us reconsider our own. Um, That's—I mean—that's not the only thing fiction's good for, but that's one of my favorites. Yeah. In in Goblin Secrets, you write about a city, Zombe, where theater is outlawed and only goblins are allowed to perform plays because they're not considered human or considered less than human. Could you talk a bit about your inspiration for this, and also? Why have so many societies and great social theorists been afraid of fiction, of fiction like the leaders of Zombie? Sure. That bit, I mean, you're right, that goes way, way back um, to specifically Plato is usually cited. Mm -hmm. And, and um, two bits of Plato, the, him wanting to kick all the poets out of his ideal republic. Yeah. But, but also um, that theater, theater freaked him out. Uh, he was, he... Specifically, uh, he and Aristotle disagreed about um, a performance of Hercules, I think it was. That, okay. That watching violent, violent insanity of Hercules yeah. going mad um, would, would inspire violent insanity uh, mm -hmm. in the audience. That if okay. it's too well performed, it would, it would become contagious. Okay. And that um, was Socrates and Plato's argument there? Yes. Okay. Yes. Whereas Aristotle mm -hmm. argued in favor of catharsis, that you can actually you can purge yourself of... Um, of too intense uh, a, a level of emotional identification by uh, by engaging with 
with the fiction of it. So inspiration versus catharsis. Plato was uh, was more monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. And we're having the same argument. We're still having the same argument. I mean, you, you hear people argue about Grand Theft Auto mm-hmm. and yeah. whether you know kids are going to do these things because they, they play them out in mm-hmm. a fictional context. Um, or whether they're less likely to. Um, we're, yeah, we're still having that argument. But anyway, the, 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 I took my fictional outlawed theater more, um, Plato's still there in the background, Plato and Aristotle having their endless argument, but mm-hmm. mostly from um, the history of theater in England. Oh, okay. And everybody should study Shakespeare. We all study Shakespeare, and we should, but um, our... Our Shakespeare worship usually overlooks how precarious his profession was. I mean, we we revere we revere Shakespearean theater now, but we didn't then. And Puritans were 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 on the rise politically at the time, mm-hmm. and very much wanted to ban theater. Um, they almost succeeded in Shakespeare's day. They did succeed not that long after his death in okay. temporarily completely outlawing mm-hmm. um, outlawing the theater. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, the, the gender-bending performances bothered them, uh, and there were class anxieties. There was, it was illegal for anyone but the gentry to, to wear silk or carry a sword unless you were an actor on stage portraying nobility. Oh, okay, and I could see that in your book and looking at some of the plots. Yeah. Exactly. And that, I mean, I loved that. I loved that people who were really at in t- the bottom of the social ladder yeah. had these special exemptions for impersonating those at the top. Yeah. Um, and you can see how Puritans in particular were, were unhappy about that. We've always had somewhere in a, a profound fear and distrust of, of fiction, of making things up. Mm-hmm. Um, Lately, just I've heard read a couple of stories. There's and heard there's one in the New Yorker and one in a recent Radiolab episode mm-hmm. about utopian thinkers trying to invent new languages in such a way Ugh. that specifically eliminates the possibility of metaphor. That that there no figures of speech, no. So everything is no, just a direct to the point literal mm-hmm. phrase and there's nothing no creativity beyond that as literal as you can make it wow and that and the and the reason a lot of 20th century a lot of yeah. apparently just responses to fascism and yeah. responses to the the fascist narrative and the sweeping wagnerian horrifying thing that um trying to burst that bubble when someone's getting you all riled up to be part of a horrific story how to how to resist that how to resist story so what do you what do you think the power of uh of storytelling is because this is something that we see transcend uh your work writing fiction but also something being used by uh either politicians or people mm-hmm. trying to make compelling arguments or even p- people trying to work through their own uh their own understanding of a complicated argument what what is this power of storytelling that sometimes scares people but also so useful the power of it um and of metaphor specifically um i mean story works according to metaphorical logic that things are things are other but related Mm -hmm. um oh god this is a big question okay yeah this is is a huge one i'm Um, I'm expecting you to answer everything that i've ever thought of in five minutes excellent here we go (laughs) all right um, 
the power of story well we are we are we are structured in terms of story as much as we as as much as we might have become horrified by the kinds of stories we were drawn into throughout the 20th century um we we are this sounds this sounds very sort of um, um sweet and mystical but we are the way our memories work um we are stories our sense of ourselves and our sense of identity is story shaped and mm-hmm. the way we selectively remember some things are not others and not others is a way of building ourselves as a story that we tell both ourselves and the world and history is us doing that collectively just deciding what to remember um and a a sense of national identity a sense of historical identity is all a story that we tell ourselves about ourselves Mm -hmm. um and all of that and whenever that gets critiqued, um, there's a lot of late 20th century thought and mid 20th century thought about um, that we shouldn't do that. That stories, that stories are false. That stories are misleading. That we mm-hmm. need to find a more true and a more rational way yeah. to to know ourselves and the world. Um, and it's not it's not actually possible. The way language works is narrative. And it works in terms of metaphor. Okay. And it actually, it wouldn't work if it was too precise. Uh, if it's like, it's like DNA. Um, the reason mutations that make natural selection possible are mistakes in reading DNA. Like mm-hmm. if, if DNA worked better, yeah. if it was more precise, then every new generation would be a clone of the previous one and yeah. there'd be no... No evolution at all. No right? evolution yeah. at all. No adaptation, no change. Yeah. Um, and language... I mean, uh, just uh, just the word meme is it explores um, how culture and language work according to the same rules mm-hmm. and the same processes as natural selection, and it's the way it's the fuzziness and the metaphors and the mistakes that yeah. make new adaptations of meaning possible. Mm-hmm. So the imperfections of language are uh, aren't they're, they're 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 what makes it work. Yeah. Um, and that that sense of imprecision and even counterfactual imprecision, even even just making things up that are not true, um, grow from that, mm-hmm. or grow grow from that metaphorical sideways associative logic that is necessary to the function of language. So the answer to the to the twentieth century panic about narrative. Isn't that we need to stop telling stories? We just need to tell better ones. Okay. <laughs> and and did you want to tie that back at all to the uh, power of fantasy, considering what you've just been telling us about storytelling? Yes, I have quotes. Okay, these, these are some of my favorite quotes. I mean, I can. It it doesn't take much to get me quoting Le Guin, yeah. um, in particular, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, mm-hmm. one of the just best and wisest voices in all of American literature. She said, reality is often best represented slantwise, backwards, or if it were an imaginary country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that says everything I've been trying to say for the past five minutes. Yeah. Far, far better. I, I yanked that from um, the introduction to one of the short story collections of hers that, that Small Beer Press just put out. Um, and Lloyd Alexander 
no relation to me, sadly, um, <laughs> but who wrote the Perdane books and a bunch of other fantastic books. Um, fantasy is hardly an escape from reality. It is a way of understanding it. Mm-hmm. Um, you see you see the same the same sentiment that it, and, and the same trying to make the same point that this isn't this isn't even when it is escapism it's never mere escapism mm-hmm. um, it's always coming back around and seeing and seeing the world the actual real world from a different vantage point and that isn't that doesn't that not only has value it's it's necessary to be able to do that with with keeping that in mind, do you consider writing fiction to be a political project or a way of enacting social change? Or perhaps a, a different way to ask a question is, is this an essential element of what we consider good fiction? My answer to this will be complicated. On the surface, no. Not direct. I mean, should writing fiction be explicitly political? I mean, yet, yes, in the sense that everything mm-hmm. is political. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, Overtly and directly political, no, because that doesn't ever work. Why, you, why is it that doesn't work? You end up writing after-school specials. I mean, okay. if you try to enact social change directly through fiction, then you end up writing uh, thinly disguised didactic lectures, uh, tracks of, like Victorian tracks of improving literature, yeah. writing improving literature for my good little citizens of you. <laughs> I mean, it's annoying. Horrible things happen to fairy tales yeah. um, in, in in Victorian literature to uh, in order to uh, teach people how to behave properly. And, it, and I. And I hate being lectured at by a story, even if I agree with the lecture. Yeah. Even if there's no actual political disagreement with the author's intent, mm-hmm. it it makes it not a story. And and any any decent narrative will will always escape the author's intention, political or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Just as just as metaphors always have multiple meanings, uncontrollable meanings, a good story. A good story will be larger than the author, and, mm-hmm. and anything the author meant to say. Um, and the standard line when faced with this sort of question is always no. Um, usually, usually because you can see the censors coming for you, mm-hmm. and you have to, you know, cover your ass and say, "Nope, there's nothing dangerous or political here. We are, we are just entertainers." La yeah. la 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 la. Uh, but well, another theme of your book. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Don't mind us. Yeah. It's just a show. It's just a play. Um, there's the there's the end of Midsummer Night's Dream when Puck stands up in front of everyone and says, "This was just play, and it was fun. And please don't shut us all down." Um, but indirectly, everything, everything, everything is political, mm-hmm. and we become visible to ourselves in the stories that we tell. That's that's important. That's always important. One example. Uh, until until really recently, young protagonists in novels, either explicitly you know written and marketed to kids or not, but young young protagonists are almost always male. Mm-hmm. Um, the only major exception I can think of off the top of my head um, is To Kill a Mockingbird, but and male protagonists in in kidlit in in y, YA and middle grade. Um, has until really recently been the absolute norm. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Potter, like, I love Harry Potter. Harry Potter's great. But you can see, I mean, she wrote under J.K. Rowling. Nobody knew that the author was female at yeah. first. 
and the protagonist is male. Her, I mean, Hermione does all the actual work, uh, but she's but but Harry's the chosen one. Yeah, and the 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 logic of that has been that girls don't mind reading about a male protagonist and imagining themselves as a male protagonist. Yeah, but boys mind the opposite. So if you if you cast the lead as a girl, boys won't read it, and you cut your audience in half. Yeah. If you cast the lead as a boy, girls will read it just fine. The the imaginative drag necessary to to identify directly with that protagonist, girls don't seem to have trouble with that. So. Which uh, returning to video games, which you mentioned before, is the dominant pattern. It's always a male, unless it's a, a sexual object you can stare at. Watching Laura Croft's yeah. short shorts yeah. that run through a maze. Yeah. 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 So that's that that kind of taking advantage of that kind of identification and perpetuating that. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to cut your audience in half, so you always, 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 always write about a boy. Yeah, that's changing now, which is fantastic. I mean, girls, boys seem to be willing now to read more books about girl protagonists. We've we've broken up that self fulfilling. Prophecy. Um, plenty of boys read Hunger Games, yeah. for example. Um, and that's eroding the belief that male subjectivity is objective and normative and standard. And to be female is just a, a derivative subset of that standard. Um, yeah. Just who gets to be the lead in the story either erodes that patriarchal sensibility or helps shore it up. That's important, and it's actually, it's far more important than than cause and effect. Like, is that change? Is the fiction creating that change, or is it simply reflecting that change that's that's happening in our society? Uh, I, I I don't care. Who cares? Yeah. Both are true. It's a it's a reciprocal conversation. So we don't we don't. I get very very bored when we have a chicken and the egg argument. Yeah. About it. Um, and my first book does have a male protagonist. Um, I admit that's how the story happens, but my second book doesn't, so you know. So no need to feel guilty. <laughs> yes, try not to. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you when you won the National Book Award, it was for it was youth fiction. Was that the category that you won technically? Youth or? Literature. Youth actually, literature. There was um um in, including nonfiction. It was a uh, young young people's literature. I think is the name of the category. Okay. Um, but one of the other finalists of the, the book Bomb is uh, was. A nonfiction uh, work of history about the about the atomic bomb. Oh, okay. So, yeah, lots of and lots and lots of books. Okay. So, so my question is, what does it mean to be writing not just fiction, but fiction that is oriented towards youth to some degree? I mean, obviously, I picked it up and read it, and I I feel like I've aged out of that category. But I'm still reading the books. <laughs> um, but what does it mean to write towards uh, towards youth? Uh, it means. Well, in some, the way that it means absolutely nothing is that um, uh, YA and middle grade and all of these marketing categories are marketing categories. Mm-hmm. And plenty of grown-ups read kids' books. So it's an open question. Does this actually mean anything other than deciding which shelf in the bookstore to shelve it under? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it does, then, I mean, of course, of course it does mean something. It, it, uh, when... When your audience isn't exclusively, but it is explicitly kids. Um, 
I don't I don't write for kids to try to teach them anything, mm-hmm. um, because, like we were just talking about, the the cause and effect relationship between just fiction and society doesn't work that way, especially especially with a younger audience. I have to take particular care not to write after school specials. Um, kids can smell an overtly didactic intent, and they <laughs> they will not tolerate it, yeah. and and they shouldn't. Um, but if a book if a book can expand their sense of possibility even just a little, then the secondary effects of that can be huge. It, it, it certainly was with me. China Mieville said said this about Joan Aiken, the, specifically the wolves of Willoughby Chase. Oh, I love that as a kid. He said, Mieville said, if that kind of writing hits you at the right time when you're a child, the impact is like nothing else ever. And maybe it's pure ego, but there's something incredibly intoxicating about the idea of trying to do that. Um, just to credit my sources, I yanked that from a Locus interview. Okay. Um, and and he, is, he is absolutely right. It is insanely, impossibly ambitious to write for kids and to strive for that kind of impact. But I, I have to try because I remember that impact. I mean, I remember yeah. the books that struck me like nothing else ever before or since when I was 11 years old. And that's that more than anything else is why I write for kids because I've never, I have never loved books more than I did then. Yeah, definitely. So uh, the word on the street is that you've been busy and hard at work on your next book, Ghoulish Song. Ah, that's the title. That is the title of my next book, but I am not working on it because it comes out next month. Oh, okay. It's, it's done. It's done. But it comes out uh, March 5th is when it, it will exist. And it's a, that one's a companion book to Goblin Secrets. It actually happens at exactly the same time because though, and there are some characters in common. Mm-hmm. But it's a different standalone story. You can just see the other story happening in the background. Oh, that's a great idea. Because it's a it's a big city. There's always more than one thing happening at once. And if... So, uh, perfect. So after the readers run to their bookstore and pick up Goblin Secrets and read it, then they can go back to the bookstore and get your next yes! book. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you.